Good morning. Welcome to Mountain Radio Astronomy. This month on the program, we'll be talking with Mike Hollis. Mike is looking for prebiotic molecules in the Milky Way. These are molecules that form the building blocks for things like proteins, molecules which are necessary for the formation of life. In addition, on today's program, we'll be talking with some young scientists from Poganis County High School. These high school students competed in the Regional Science Bowl at the observatory last week, and we'll chat with them to hear what they have to say about it. Well, joining us today is Mike Hollis, and he is uh, an astronomer at the NASA Goddard Space Flight Center, and he's been here over over the last couple of years several times. I've been bugging him for an interview for about a year now, and he's agreed to do one with me. So let me welcome you to Mountain Radio Astronomy, Mike. Thank you very much. Okay, so start out a little bit by uh, telling us about yourself and what you do when you come to Green Bank to use the Green Bank Telescope. Well, um, I'm very much interested in uh, interstellar sugars. Several years ago, in the year 2000, we discovered the first two-carbon sugar known as glycoaldehyde. And since that time, the NREO 12-meter uh, telescope that, on which we discovered it was shut down. So we've been waiting for the Green Bank Telescope to come online. And in the year 2004, it did, and we could follow up on our observations of glycoaldehyde with the Green Bank Telescope. And what we found was that uh, glycoaldehyde is very, very cold. It's only a few degrees above absolute zero, uh, around 8 Kelvin. So we wrote a paper from that called uh, Cold Sugar, essentially. And uh, that was uh, uh, very, very well received in the uh, astronomical community. Okay, so you used uh, the 12-meter telescope, which is no longer in NRAO's hands, and then you've been back here to use the Green Bank Telescope to look for what you're calling cold sugar. And we're all familiar with the term sugar. Uh, we're familiar with it in terms of having a bowl full of it on the table and scooping some out to put in our coffee. You're looking for sugar that's not a solid, though, right? Well, everything that we see in the interstellar clouds is in the gas phase. The, uh, that's the only way you can really detect molecules, if they're liberated into the gas phase. If they're solid, then they would be uh, prohibited for, from radiating through pure rotational transitions. So the, the molecules that we search for, if they're in the gas phase, we can detect them uh, with a radio telescope. Okay, so sugar is a molecule. And uh, let's just talk a little bit about what a molecule is. It's been a while since I, some of our listeners have been in high school chemistry class. What is a molecule? Well, a molecule is made up of, of atoms. And in particular, this two-carbon sugar is made up of two, two, carbons, two carbon atoms, two oxygen atoms, and four hydrogen atoms. So it's the simplest possible sugar. It's an aldehyde sugar. And... Um, a more complicated sugar known as ribose, which is the backbone of RNA, and, uh, and a variant of that is the backbone of DNA, is a five-carbon sugar. So most of the molecules that we see in the interstellar clouds have constituent atoms less than, less than or equal to about 12 atoms. Okay. Now, out there in space, how can sugar be formed? I mean, how can you get a molecule like this? formed at all? 
Well, that's one of the, the, the mysteries that we're trying to solve with the Green Bank Telescope. We, we've been looking for ways to polymerize formaldehyde, for example, which is, which is a H2CO. And uh, this two-carbon sugar could be comprised of two uh, molecules of H2CO bound together. And uh, no one really knows exactly how molecules much larger than f five constituent atoms are formed in space, but we suspect that they are catalyzed on grains. The nature of the grains, however, is highly uncertain, so the field is wide open for interpretation. Interstellar chemistry is, in many respects, in its infancy. And by grain, you mean like a little speck of something? Well, uh, in these clouds, there are clouds of gas and dust, and about uh, a tenth of the mass of these clouds is, is in the form of dust. And, and the dust is, is formed of silicates or uh, solid material that uh, allows, we think, al allows catalyzed reactions to go on the surface or in the mantles of these grains. They also have, the grains themselves could have icy mantles around them. Now we hear that space is a is a vacuum that there's not much uh, of anything in there. I was uh, looking it up on the internet to find out how much air would be in a mason jar, and it's way too much to even talk about. So I figured out how much air, how many air molecules might be in a teaspoon if you could scoop a teaspoonful of air and then count the molecules in it. And what I figured out was 150 billion billion molecules inside a teaspoon. How does that compare with what you're looking for out in space? Well, astronomers worry about column density. In other words, along the line of sight in a square centimeter, how many atoms are in that column? And um, for example, toward the, the sources that we look at, like uh, the, the galactic center, the column density of hydrogen molecules, which are the most abundant molecules, would have a column density of something like uh, 10 to the 23rd to 10 to the 24th molecules per square centimeter. So that's a tremendous number of molecules that would be uh, in the line of sight. Now, when you look for molecules like we're looking for, like uh, glycoaldehyde, for example, the column density of that molecule is on the order of like 10 to the 14th molecules per square centimeter. And if you th think about it, all those molecules along that line of sight are doing the same thing in the gas phase. They're making a transition from one energy state to another, and that's the reason why we can detect them is because there's so many along the line of sight. And 10 to the 14 is quite a lot. Well, <laughs> 10 to the 10 followed by 14 zeros. 10 followed by 14 zeros, and that's because you're looking from here. One zeros. followed by 14 zeros. And that's because you're looking from here all the way to the center of the galaxy, which is a long way away. Well, the, the, the galaxy, most, most of these molecules are near the center of the galaxy, but, but, the, but the distance, even in the center of the galaxy, is, is fairly long. The, the path length along which you're looking is, is fairly long to have these this large number of molecules. Okay, so let's talk about that a little bit. You say that when you're here using the Green Bank Telescope to look for these molecules, that you're looking toward the center of the galaxy itself. And 
Why, why are you looking there? Well, it's sort of like uh, when they asked John Dillinger uh, why he robbed banks, and he said, that's where the money is. <laughs> we look towards the center of the galaxy because that's where the molecules are. Because there's more gas there? Well, the, the center of the galaxy uh, and the, the, the source that we look at is known as Sag B2 North, and it's a star-forming region. And it has, you know, a lot of exotic molecules in that region. Uh, and and uh, presumably stars and planets form out of that material. So it's very dusty and it, and it shields the molecules very well. So they, uh, it's probably the, the richest source in the galaxy for looking for molecules. Let's talk a little bit about why it is or how it is that molecules radiate radio waves. Let's get into a little bit of detail there. You're using a radio telescope to look at a cloud of gas that's several thousand light years away. How is it that these molecules emit radio waves that you can detect? What goes on? Well, well molecules can um, emit several ways. First of all, a molecule is made up of atoms and uh, electrons that are surrounding it. And if the if the electrons change their configuration, the molecule radiates in the ultraviolet primarily. If the molecule and the atoms in it vibrate, it emits in the infrared. But what we're looking for is the molecule changing its rotational configuration. It'll be rotating in one direction and then change in a different direction. And when it does that, it emits a photon in, in the radio region. And the reason why it's very, uh, the reason why we would much prefer to use the radio waves to identify molecules is because no two molecules will radiate in the, in pure rotational transitions the same way. And so you can uniquely identify molecules in the radio region. For example, in the infrared, when molecules vibrate, it has to do with the functional groups that are in the molecule. And one molecule may have the same functional group as another molecule and so you can't distinguish between the two. How do you know at what precise frequency the radio waves are going to be emitted? Well, mainly a lot of spectroscopy in, labor in the laboratory has gone on before we uh, ever observe on the telescope. There have been instances, however, when we've predicted the structure of a molecule from ab initio calculations and then predicted the radio spectrum to try to find a molecule that hasn't been observed in the laboratory before, but the uncertainties are so large that usually you, you won't have, well, you, no one that I know of has ever had any luck doing that. So, so you really are ba basing your observations on laboratory spectroscopy in, you know, very precise frequency determinations of the molecule in, in you know, one part in 10 to the, in 10 million. So in the lab, a chemist can induce a molecule to emit radio waves just like you might see them in space? Is that how that's done? Well, I'm not a, a laboratory spectroscopist, but in essence, that's what, that's what happens. The densities in the laboratory are much, you know, are much greater than interstellar space, and um, you, you have to vaporize the sample and, and observe it in a sample cell. And of course that sample cell has a much shorter path length, but the densities are much greater. So you're going to be able to see the molecule. The problem in the laboratory lots of times is making sure you can vaporize the molecule because it will interact with the cell walls and sometimes you won't be able to get that molecule into the gas phase. 
or you might have great difficulty. For example, when they, we, years ago, we uh, determined the spectrum of the amino acid glycine, but they had to use a gold-plated cell at high temperatures to get that compound to stay in the gas phase and not react with the cell walls so that, so that you couldn't see it. So you point the telescope at the galactic center. At what frequencies are you looking for? What are you looking for right now? At what frequencies do these molecules radiate? Well, with the Green Bank Telescope, it operates all the way from 150 megahertz up to presently 50 gigahertz. And I've used the telescope from about 4 gigahertz up to 48 gigahertz now. And it all depends on the molecule. If you're looking for a molecule, as I said, each molecule, when it has uh, rot uh, when it has pure rotational transitions, the uh, the frequencies will all be different. So every molecule is a different experiment. Well, tell us about some of the molecules that are out there. You, what kinds of molecules have been discovered in the Milky Way? You s talked a little bit about your two carbon sugar there. What's out there? Are they familiar things or unfamiliar things? Well, some are familiar. Some are fairly exotic, but uh, up until now, about 135 interstellar molecules have been detected. And uh, most of them, are, more than half of them, are either two atom molecules or three atom molecules. But the, the interesting stuff is the larger molecules because those, the, the large organic molecules start to take on prebiotic significance. And that's the reason why there's, there's a large amount of interest in following up on sugars, for example, because sugars are necessary for life as we know it. By organic molecules. By organic, I mean carbon-bearing molecules. So there's a prevalence of carbon-bearing molecules in the Milky Way? Are they more well, common than non-carbon? Well, of the 135 different interstellar molecules, about 90% of them contain carbon. So basically what this suggests is, is that there's a universal prebiotic chemistry going on in interstellar space long before it ever occurs on a uh, primordial, uh, primordial Earth. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about that. Well, basically, looking for molecules of prebiotic importance, once you find them, essentially what it does is lift restrictions on life as we know it existing elsewhere in the galaxy. So, it's of course, the SETI project is hoping that uh, E.T. will call home. Right. But, but if he doesn't, what we're doing is we're, we're, we're looking for chemical evolution in space. And, and that chemical evolution that we're seeking has hopefully some bearing on, on the evolution uh, towards life. So these molecules existing out there, they form the, the, the basis of life. We can find molecules like this in ourselves or on Earth. And then we have to figure out how to go from that to life itself, I guess. Well, one of, the, one of the biggest problems on any experiment for finding life is that there's no generally accepted definition of life. But in our case, what we're doing is essentially prebiotic chemistry in space. Others have done prebiotic chemistry in the laboratory on the Earth. And what we see is, even though those two, the, the way you go about those two chemistries are vastly different, the results are the same. You see the same kinds of prebiotic species, for example, like sugars and aldehydes and, and uh, HCN and those kinds of molecules that are, are elemental towards uh, prebiotic chemistry. 
what molecules would you just dearly love to find in this course of study, prebiotic molecules that might give us more information about how life could evolve? Well, of course, people have been searching for over 30 years for the amino acid glycine. My colleagues and I have been searching for it diligently and published several papers on it, but they, those papers have always been negative results. So that's one molecule that we've, we would like to detect. Uh, another molecule that we would like to detect is, uh, is a, the next sugar up glyceraldehyde, a three carbon sugar. If we found that, that would suggest that sugar synthesis was going on in space. In the laboratory now, we're looking for the gas phase spectrum of ribose. And once we find that, we'll look for that in space as well. So those are the kinds of molecules that we would like to detect. The, the, one of the problems is the, the instruments sometimes uh, lag behind the signals in space. So as telescopes improve, our chances of finding these molecules improve because the, the collecting area, for example, the sensitivity of the instrument gets better. The resolution of the telescope gets better. For example, when NREO builds the ALMA array, I'm sure people will be using that to look for new molecules. Have you ever detected signals that you can't identify yet as a particular molecule? We, yes, we call them unidentified lines. <laughs> <laughs> and in fact, uh, I guess one of the first uh, interstellar molecules uh, that was detected, it was very strong. They called it exogen because they didn't know exactly what it contained. And that molecule turned out to be uh, HCO plus uh, an ion. And um, I did my thesis on uh, that molecule. So glycine could be out there, or do you know? Do you know what it's supposed to? What the signal should look like if you were to detect we, it? We we know the frequencies, the rotational frequencies of glycine very well. We've known them since 1980. We just haven't been able to detect it. Keep hammering away, and maybe one day you'll be successful in that. And that's an exciting molecule because it is an amino acid, which is part of the building. It's a building block of protein, right? Well, they, there are 20 amino acids that are the building blocks of proteins. So if you go from amino acids, then we can infer maybe that proteins could be formed elsewhere. Well, if, 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 all, these if all these prebiotic molecules are out there, then, then the, the chances for life are enhanced. That's pretty cool. Now, you mentioned a little bit about the difficulties that you encounter using the Green Bank Telescope or or any telescope. Tell us in our last couple of minutes about what it's like to to use the telescope to hunt for molecules. Well, this telescope is is very easy to use. It's it's been well designed from both the hardware and software point of view. Uh, the only significant problem we've had in recent times is that at at C band, which is around four to six gigahertz, there's so much man-made interference that even here in this radio quiet zone we still are affected by that because these are satellite transmissions, mainly uh, telecommunications uh, signals, and they preclude us from looking in, in that region to, to, at least to our satisfaction. Because they're just, those signals are so much stronger. Than... Those signals are so much stronger, and we're looking for things that are very weak. So when, when we have interference like that, uh, at least in that region, there's, there's spikes every 20 megahertz. It, it pretty much wipes out anything that we can do in space. So uh, the east coast of the United States is really uh, light polluted, but now 
in, in this radio quiet zone, it's also radio polluted. Right. There's nothing much we can do about signals coming to us from satellites. People that listen to our broadcast do know about the National Radio Quiet Zone. They all live in it, but the zone doesn't extend up. So that is a increasing problem. Yeah, there's a few there's a few experiments I'd like to do if they could shut down uh, all these satellite transmissions for a few days. Well, we'll just call NBC and CBS <laughs> and whoever they are and tell them will they just please turn it off as a public service for a couple of days. I'm sure with your personality you could probably do it. <laughs> well, I can give it a try anyway. What can they say? No, <laughs> that's the only thing they can say. All right. Well, I do appreciate you being with us this morning and uh, telling us about your research, and good luck. I think the prebiotic chemistry in space is really fascinating as it applies directly to us here on Earth and how we came to be. Well, thank you very much for having me. Thank you. So on November 3rd, here at the National Radio Astronomy Observatory, three groups of young scientists convened here for a competition and the competition is called the Regional Science Bowl. I'm joined here this afternoon, just after the competition, with the Pocahontas County High School team, and I'm going to let you introduce yourselves. We'll start with you, Ben. Hello, I am Ben Egan. I am Zach Grimes, and I'd like to say hi to my grandma. <laughs> Emily Egan, and I'm the captain. Laura Brandt. <laughs> Sammy Jans. And with them also is their coach, the venerable Mary Sue Burns, who's been coaching successful Science Bowl teams for a number of years now. So let's ask Emily to start out by telling uh, the folks out there what the Science Bowl is and what it was like, and then we'll get some comments from the rest of you too. Well, the Science Bowl is a competition where we are asked questions about any aspect of science, anything from geology to math to physics. Marine biology was a big thing this year. And we are given four points for a right answer, and then after we answer correctly, we get a bonus question, which is worth 10 points. Our team is a very, very new team. None of us have competed before. So we did really good this year. I agree with that. They came in second place, uh, and that means they're going on to the state Science Bowl competition in February, which is really, really cool. Now, the way the Science Bowl works is that for any given match, there are two teams. So Pocahontas County High School might be matched up against uh, Meadowbridge High School, which was here this year, for example. And each team has how many, how many people at any one time? Four and one alternate. Okay, four and one alternate. So at any given time, uh, lined up opposite each other are four young scientists. There's a moderator, and this uh, works kind of like a quiz bowl. So the moderator asks a question, and then somebody, the first person on a given team that pushes the buzzer, gets the opportunity to answer that question. Zach, you answered a question that I I thought it was an amazing question, number one, and you shouted out that answer with such conviction. It was just really, really awesome. This was a question uh, about the history of science, about a particular scientist who also plays the fiddle. Can you remember what that question was? The question had something to do with someone asking him to... Explain the equation, but he said, I could play it on my fiddle. Yes, and I you... I may not be able to explain the equation, but I can play it on the fiddle. Yep, and the answer to that was, who was that person? And the answer was Albert Einstein, and you knew that with extreme conviction. How in the world did you know that Einstein played the fiddle in the first place? Um, well, I, uh, 
read an article in Scientific America about um, Albert Einstein compared to Isaac Newton, two geniuses, and one of his hobbies was playing the fiddle. So I assumed that since he played the fiddle, he could talk to the equations by the fiddle. Well, you, you guessed right, and uh, you even chimed in, I think, before that question was finished. And if you do chime in on a team, push the buzzer before the question is finished, and you answer wrong, Laura, what happens then if you answer wrong and you press the buzzer before the moderator has finished delivering the question? The four points goes to the other team automatically, regardless of if they know the answer or not. Right, the four points goes to the other team, but that didn't happen very often. Even when you guys were guessing, just once. <laughs> just once, Zach was quick on the buzzer there, and it passed over to the other team. And So can anybody remember what the toughest question was or... We had, we had a few questions that were kind of uh, common, or not common sense, but easier questions that we should have gotten, but we missed them. We had one about the um, asteroids around Jupiter, and it was a ro uh, Greek horse, and we answered uh, Pegasus instead of Trojan. And just simple questions like that that got us this time, so... Well, that happens every time, and I noticed this time, too, that there were questions that if you had listened to the answer for the, this question, the next question was directly related to that. I don't think I've ever seen that kind of situation before. What do you say about that, Mary Sue? Yeah, I noticed that at least twice that happened, and uh, I think the other team was a little quicker on the buzzer in both cases, but yeah, paying attention is a really important thing. These, these kids really know a lot of science, but there's also a game aspect to this. It's definitely, it's definitely a game, and game strategy comes with experience. So what is a, a strategy for winning? Your coach, Mary Sue, here, Mary Sue Burns, what does she tell you before a match to help increase your chances of, of racking up those points? Wait to be verbally recognized. <laughs> yeah. Something that we have a little bit of a problem with. So you guys go on to Morgantown in February. And none of you has been on a Science Bowl team before. So what's going to be different about Morgantown, Mary Sue? How many teams show up for the statewide competition? What's it like compared to this regional competition? Well, this will be the big time. There will be 16 teams from all over the state. And most of them will probably be much larger schools than Pocahontas County High School. So hopefully we can hang in there and hold our own on that. They, um, they divide the 16 teams into two brackets, and they have a round-robin tournament in each bracket, and then the top two teams from each bracket proceed to the, the finals, and that's a double elimination for that. So we'll be up against some extremely stiff competition. Okay, now other things go on during the Science Bowl day in Morgantown, too. Some pretty fun things. Is that right? Yeah, the teams that don't make it into those, those finals, which is 12 teams, because four go on to the finals, the other 12 teams participate in a hands-on competition, which um, typically Pocahontas County High School has done pretty well in. So they have um, some things where they might have to build something or a challenge activity where they compete for points against some other schools. And that's a, that's a really fun part of the day, too. Well, I'm getting ready to stop the interview now, which is why I'm sitting here twiddling my thumbs. <laughs> Sammy, I haven't heard a thing from you yet. So was it fun? Yeah, it was pretty fun. And did you uh, expect to do as well as you did? <laughs> a little bit, yeah. There were some people who doubted our abilities. 
Zach. <laughs> but as long as you look at it with an open mind, I think we did pretty good. I think you guys did great, and what I was really impressed with was you didn't seem to be nervous. Were you nervous? Yes. Ben says yes. <laughs> Zach says I, yes, yes. I was. I was being optimistic by this morning by saying we were awful, but... That was just to try to, to calm your nerves a little bit, yeah. lower the expectations for the team. I didn't expect much out of it, but... Um, my heart was pounding out of my chest when, during our first round. I, I am known to I'm surprised people couldn't hear it. It was freaking out, so... I look for shaking hands. I didn't see any shaking hands. I, I, was, I was nervous this morning, and then we got and we listened to the first round, and we were all looking at each other. We're like, we can answer these. We can... We can I knew that. And after that, I kind of calmed down, and I was like, we can do this, and we did. Yes, you did. Congratulations to all of you, and good luck in February when you head to Morgantown for the state competitions. That about wraps it up for Mountain Radio Astronomy this month. Thanks for joining us. If you'd like to learn more about molecules in the Milky Way, visit our website at www.gb.nrao.edu. For Mountain Radio Astronomy, this is Sue Ann Heatherly. See you next month.